Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hi. For the uh, for the No Film School podcast for the week of November 9th, 2019. This week on the podcast, we're going to continue talking about Scorsese's feelings about superhero movies. We had two articles about it this week, and it's fascinating. We're also going to talk a little bit about pushing back against censorship with Booksmart. Uh, in tech news, we're going to be talking about the releases that came out of Adobe Max. And then we have kind of an oddball Ask No Film School, but I saw it on the forums and I really liked it. So we're going to go with, what is an HBO show that you think I probably haven't seen and I should? Which is like such a great Ask No Film School. All of that this week on the No Film School podcast. Since 1996, Film Tools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, Film Tools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at FilmTools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to filmtools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. Okay, so the first story this week is Scorsese first off felt compelled to write a very long, was it an op-ed or an open letter in the New York Times explaining his thoughts on superhero movies in more detail, which I thought was really nice of him, and it was a very n- nuanced, detailed response. But we also had an article this week. I did not realize that Scorsese himself had almost directed The Joker. Um, I didn't realize yeah. that that was a part of the... I, I missed that somehow, which just goes further to say that, like, it's so funny how, like, radically the story has changed. Like, Scorsese gives a very nuanced, thorough answer about, like, oh, well, yeah, I'm not really interested in what's uh, going on with superhero movies. It's not for me. But And then the internet is like, he hates superhero movies. Motherfucker almost directed one. Motherfucker spent four <laughs> years prepping one. He clearly thought a lot about it and decided it wasn't his wheelbase. And you know what I loved so much about it? His answer when he talked about why he eventually passed on the Joker was 100% character-based. And, you know, we all talk about these amazing tracking shots with Scorsese. We all talk about these beautiful performances with Scorsese. We all talk about, like, the beautiful images he's crafted. But, like, when he's talking about whether or not he wants to commit to directing a movie or not, all he talked about was character. And for him, he was like, it was a really interesting script. It was a propulsive script. But when the character turned into a cartoon, into a comic book character, I couldn't engage enough to feel, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, like, he couldn't engage enough to continue through the process. So, like, as much as we think about all of the reasons why someone might make a movie or all of the reasons that people are excited about movies, for Scorsese, like, one of the most signature visual directors in cinema history, it is 100% a character decision. Scorsese moved on from that movie because he couldn't fully engage with the character once the character became more two-dimensional at the end of the script. And I was like, yeah, that is totally why you pass on a project. If you can't stay with the character as a director, that's like the best reason in the world to pass on it. And I thought it was a really interesting. So like, you know, I know that the New York Times op-ed is getting a lot of the attention because he gives a very nuanced answer about what is happening in the cinema industry and what he wishes it looked like more. But I also really liked him discussing in a separate article why he passed on Joker. I thought it was a real insight and into his process. 
and yeah, let's. I'll give a little. I'll give a little context. So there's two stories up on NoFilmSchool.com. One covering uh, why Scorsese passed on the Joker and how he developed it. The other covering this big op-ed he wrote in the New York Times that I think went out yesterday, and we got this post up as quickly as we could, and it's up on the site, and people are talking about it all over the place. Look, when Scorsese first made this comment, I think in Empire Magazine, I could be wrong. There was a lot of backlash and a lot of memes and a lot of commentary and a lot of arguing and then who's what cinema, what isn't cinema, and we even covered it on the podcast, right? And then around the same time, the Joker was popping. Like, it really came into, uh, you know, the PR things ramped up and the Joker was released and that was a big deal and that was a huge story within the community. And obviously, like, we say... Scorsese didn't direct the Joker and he prepped it, but there's so much Scorsese in that movie. Um, it's his presence looms large. And this almost gives us more insight as to why. But I think what you say that's interesting to point out again is that his answer for why he didn't continue with Joker is kind of also his problem with comic book movies and Marvel movies, as he calls them. Let's let's also say he says Marvel, but he's really talking about comic book movies. He's talking about franchises, tent poles, existing IP being resurrected, like to whatever you know, to some success, or like this last weekend with Terminator: Dark Fate, not so much success. But he's talking about how the theaters have become a place where it's boomer bust in terms of box office. And the best way to do that right now is by using some really popular IP, like something from Marvel. Uh, and he's talking about how that's not the cinema he grew up loving or what, how he defines cinema or the kind of filmmaking he wants to do. And I just think the thing that, the, the thing that's so important to point out in my opinion about all of this is that, and I think Martin Scorsese is well aware of this, but Martin Scorsese came of age at a very unique time as a filmmaker. And for a little while there, after the collapse of the studio system in the late 60s, through really through Star Wars, which ushered in this new blockbuster era, Jaws Star Wars, and that's right when Scorsese really developed, the director, filmmaker, and their POV was a selling point behind a major release. That has not been the case for most directors in most of the history of movie making, right? Yeah, it Writers wasn't and directors before then or after then. <laughs> right. And so Scorsese is actually, and his his cohorts, Coppola, um, Spielberg, and Lucas, even though they're part of the blockbuster thing, um, the people of that era, um, I mean, the, the ones who kind of fell off are more like the Bogdanovich, um, I'm forgetting his name, Michael Cimino, but uh, Bogdanovich would defend th- that he's still working in interviews. He's yeah, like, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm turning out movies every year. So like, let's not he's say he, pro- totally he probably fell is off. right. For all we know, he could be making ten movies and they could all be on Hulu and we wouldn't yeah. know, right? I mean, but uh, point remaining, just uh, or point being that yes, as you just said, you summed it up really well. It wasn't true before that period. It hasn't been true after that period. And Martin Scorsese belongs to that period. So when he talks to us, and I and I hate to bring up the the buzz phrase, but the OK Boomer thing that pe- that pe- that's going around is like he's part of a very unique 
spot in time that is unlike all other filmmaking generations where it was, no, we don't really care what a writer's point of view is. No, we don't really care about the director. Like we care about a star or we care about a property or we care about a franchise. Like that's, that's how movies get made most of the time. Scorsese is, is a unicorn and he's, a, he's amazing and he's special and we love that era. But let's be real in, in a sense. Like I wish it was always like that. But it's not, and, it, and it's not normally. Well, except I think he's also lamenting a little bit that we've moved into a space where it is viewed that those interesting things, because like we all know where those interesting things are. Those interesting things are on television. And I think he's very yep. legitimately lamenting that he's like, no, 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 no. Interesting things on 80-foot screens is great. And I think it's like very yes. much driven by a like, no, guys, have you been in the theater with 400 people watching something really fascinating and different? It's awesome. And he's it totally really right. Is. And I do think that there is a it's funny because I'm lucky enough to have only to live most of my adult life in Los Angeles and New York. And in Los Angeles and New York, there's always one or two movie theaters, you know, and then there's the Alamo chain nationwide that managed mm-hmm. to show a big wide variety of crazy shit. Um, yes. And so the like, you know, we, we spent a year in St. Louis and I love St. Louis, but like it was harder to see some of our favorite movies in theaters. Although there was a theater in the Central West End where they had little plates of candy held by ushers when you left. And I fucking love that place. Shout out. <laughs> um, uh, I just wanted to say on that point, though, real quick. Um, if you've never seen a movie like like I'm also being in L.A., another really fortunate thing about a revival house, like before Tarantino took over the new Beverly, they used to just play all manner of old movies. Do they I not saw anymore? The Godfather. Well, they do, but it's it's more scored of skews towards his. I mean, it's his theater, so it's going to be you're not like I saw the Godfather there. I saw Chinatown there. I saw Last Picture Show there. Not to mention like Maltese Falcon and all the oh, movies yeah. of they have know, like a double feature Kurosawa of, movies. Yeah, like you a... see, you can you can see everything on the big screen with an audience of people who love the movie. And I've got to say, like you just said, you can experience a Twelve Angry Men in a theater, and it's amazing. And yeah. you're not gonna get that's I. Uh, 100% agree that what Martin Scorsese is lamenting is is a is sort of a different sort of issue than what I was talking about, which is how movies get made. But what kind of movies get made? Um, there aren't really dramas or, you know, that it's just a shame. They're great movies. All yeah. those kinds of movies. Well, and there's so amazing. many things that like I love Secession so much. But like it's so a, good. A, a three and a half hour edit of Secession that was shown in a movie theater and I could be in it with like 450 people. And then at the end, we could go burn down a millionaire's yacht. Like how <laughs> satisfying would that have been? And, you know, we, can you imagine laughing with a crowd at some of like the Tom and Greg kind of moments? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. With like 50 people in the audience shouting, no, Greg, don't do it. Don't do it. When he's about to shred the papers, <laughs> like that kind of like big communal thing it is. I think he's sort of hitting on something that is like fundamental to being human, which is as long as there's been theater, as long as there's been storytelling, we've enjoyed watching these stories be told in big groups at least to the greek theater amphitheater like being with 400 other people and watching a story together and reacting to it as a group is such a powerful sensation and so i think a little bit he laments the fact that right now and i actually don't think this is permanent i just think at the moment most theaters are full with very spectacle driven um Movies, and that is, like, that's a legitimate lament. 
And mm-hmm. I, I get his frustration with that. I actually suspect that the pendulum will keep swinging around wild directions like Alamo does so well. You know what I mean? And there are so many That's other theaters I want to hear more. Really... What, what else makes you think that? Because then I'll kind of counterpoint that. But I want to hear more of your like optimistic, your hope for the future. I could use a little bit of that. I mean, my hope <laughs> for the future is just always that anytime, like monocultures tend to fuck them. You know, the Irish potato famine was at least partially because everyone got really into making one type of potato. And then all of a sudden, when that type of potato got potato blight, everybody starved because they were too into one type of potato. And I think we see that right. over and, and over in and businesses. You, you, mean, you mean growing one type, not like they were all French fries. Not yes. like in preparation. Yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify, but, but yes. But one like, kind of crop. If it was 1978 and you were like, well, you know, I really love like my niche soda at the local soda fountain and I'm so bummed everybody's drinking Pepsi and Coke. Many people in 1978 were like, yeah, but that's just how it is. There's Pepsi and Coke and my family had RC Cola and that was it. But like literally right now, I can't remember the last time I saw Pepsi. I live in Brooklyn. So like you go to a restaurant and it's like Johnny Sarsaparilla and it's like this bit like there are these cycles where like it's a monoculture dominant cycle and then it breaks and people get really into a niche. And then like so it's these. So like I think we're in the middle of a period where there is tremendous like monoculture because of frankly it's the easiest thing to market and my suspicion for the future is that as it gets easier again to market those other things we will see more of those other things back in the movie theater because there are niches that allow it to be marketed enough because, like, you know, I don't know if you've been following. I can't believe I'm going to bring Deadspin into this. But I don't know if you've been following oh, yes, the Deadspin yes. thing. But, it's you know, an amazing story. It's an amazing I mean, we story. We can't talk about it extensively because yeah. it's not on top, on on brand, or, or not something we would cover. But it's if you're unaware, just, you know, Google it and read about it. It's just yeah. an incredible and it's, story. And it's, it's yet another reminder that, like, actually those non-sports stories were doing really well. But, like, small-minded herb owners like when you let a herb buy a company herbs don't have the capability of understanding that and so they want to make the simplest possible decision in order to do that so like right now it's the easiest thing possible to keep trying to build all these franchises and cinematic universes but like you know a couple of them will flop a couple of them will not make money and then some other way to market to the people who legitimately want to see good things in the theater with a group of people will happen. I think marketing revolutions are just as important as content revolutions. And as we start to find, I think we're already starting to see it. Like Scorsese in one way is a marketing property, right? I'm aware yes, of Scorsese, yes. so I will go see He's Scorsese. An He's an IP. And I think we're going to start to see more and more filmmakers become IP. I mean, Ari Aster and um, the guy who did The Lighthouse are both building yes. real brands for themselves as like, I make horror movies that you should see in the theater. And I think we're starting to see a whole lot of tools come around for filmmakers to become their own IP. And I think that's really interesting. So I I personally think that we're going to still see really interesting theatrical experiences uh, that continue. I, I also think, honestly, if Scorsese really thinks about it, that movie theater on the Lower East Side uh, near Little Italy, where he saw all those great movies in the fifties, ninety percent of what they showed that year was fucking garbage. <laughs> you know what I was gonna say on that on that point because I 
Uh, I like the nuance of your perspective here, and you make some really good points that go beyond just what's happening right now, what's happened in recent history in the industry. Because what it reminds me of is to the ca- the counterpoint to the argument that Jaws and Star Wars destroyed that era, um, and this you you'll usually hear this from George Lucas is that it changed the multiplex. It created the multiplex phenomenon, and that led to perhaps in some way the space in a theater for there to be the big movie and then the the five smaller movies like the theater that had not just the one thing that opened that weekend but it had some niche things and it had some major releases well like for instance it's possible that that kind of opened up what happened in the 90s and we've talked about 90s cinema where there were a whole bunch of new filmmakers who were their own IPs like how do we get how did we get to a place where a year like 99 happened where we had Fight Club and American Beauty and etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know we don't have those kinds of movies now but those existed post Star Wars blockbuster monoculture so i think you're right um if we take a longer view of things and and we're a more nuanced perspective um, the, the thing that I'm thinking, though, the, where I come in, my counterpoint, is that I think that the niche and the nuance is happening on other platforms. I don't know if it's going to happen sustainably in the theater because I think the theater business is facing other issues because of the fragmentation of where we get our media. And I'm going to counter with two words. Gosford Park, the movie. That was four words. Gosford Park, the movie made money. <laughs> And <laughs> it made a lot of money. That was a while like, ago. It was like a month ago. Was it? Yeah, Gosford Park the movie came out like three months ago. And what it oh, did... Oh, you're talking about uh, Downton Abbey. Down I was Abbey, like, Gosford sorry. Park was a Robert no, Altman so, movie, but yes. Downton Abbey. Yeah, so, we'll take it back. Downton Down Abbey, Abbey the movie, yes. And like, <laughs> you know, TV shows getting turned into movies is something that we traditionally associated with like Starsky and Hutch and like lowbrow... But, like, I think we are starting to see, you know, like, a lot of people went to the movie theater to see these servants get ready for the king's visit, which, like, seems like a bizarre plot to me. Haven't it's seen the so movie. It's so funny. And, okay, you haven't seen it. So I saw it, and I interviewed the director, and it, he did, it, they did a great job. We're going to talk – if we talk about, like, when TV shows become movies and the Deadwood thing looms large in my mind right now, but – uh, they did a really good job creating the cinematic version of what that show was effectively. And I thought it when I saw it at a press screening and I talked to the director about it and th- that podcast is up with Michael Eggers. And uh, then the movie did really well. I think it beat that weekend uh, at Astra, uh, which is, you know, original. So, but it, it had a good... It did really well, and you're right. There is maybe what happens is some of what's happening. Like maybe we'll get Succession the movie in theaters. I, oh I honestly God. don't HBO, know. But it's a good are point. you listening? I would so <laughs> eat, I would so watch Succession the movie. I would so. Oh my God, that would be so much fun. Um, it would be yeah. Who is every who, every who episode will you finish? Kiss yeah. <laughs> every episode you finish of that show, you're sad because it's one less episode you get to watch. Yeah. Absolutely. Although there's very enjoyable podcasts you can listen to talking about it episode by episode. Van- the Vanity Fair one was really good. Still watching. All right. So I think that covers Scorsese. We should move on to the other interesting bit of news this week, which is uh, Olivia Wilde, actress turned director, although presumably still acting, did this great movie Booksmart and uh, an airline censored it and she pushed back and won. And I loved everything about this story. 
I find it so insane that because we're afraid of offending like a very niche slice of the population that doesn't want to hear the word vagina, they cut like a movie about teenagers who are like growing up and getting in touch with themselves. They cut the word vagina out of it. And like, you know, more than half our population have vaginas. Boys have penises. These are just things like I don't know why. Like this very tiny slice of the population that's like, I don't wanna I don't wanna think about vaginas means that we have to cut it out of everybody else's movies. And it's like a tricky thing to push back on. Um I mean it's it's hard to push back about censor against censorship. It really is. And like I really respect that Olivia Wilde watched her movie on an airplane. It had a parental warning at the front of it, which is already like all right, fair, I guess you're on an airplane, it's a public screening, but it's not like they just show the movie anymore. It's not the 90s where there's like those like eight-inch TV screens and they just show it whether you like it or not. Like you're using an app to navigate, to choose to watch it. You're making a decision. And then they cut out yeah. all sorts of stuff about like female sexuality and things like that, that like why are these things that we just assume to be censored? Now the airline, in I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to defend the Delta? airline here. I think it's Although, Delta. They they were like, we outsourced this, and we're going to look at this in more detail now. And they they put a version up on their planes that isn't as heavily edited. But it was just, I don't know, it was a heartwarming story about pushing back against censorship. Because usually... Here's push- what's... Oh, yeah. Ahead. I was going to say, here's what's fascinating to me about this. And, it, and it's even the microcosm of what we do on No Film School and what it is in the, the world of the internet. Uh, Olivia... Yeah, so Olivia Wilde makes these comments we cover this story and talk about the implications and we see some heat in our comment sections and social media about us taking this perspective and you know oh really uh, aggravated yeah and and almost an aggravated i mean not as bad as you know some things we write but you know there's a lot enough people read the content on no film school or from no film school that you get all manners of opinions which is great um, and you don't have to agree with all of them, but we did see some, uh, we don't, why, why should people be forced? It's effectively the problem that you pointed out, which is you can be extremely anti-censorship. And nowadays that almost comes around to the other side, which is like kind of a pro-censorship in certain ways, because it's this, uh, there's a paradox of intolerance. Like, should we be intolerant of intolerance? And I think that that's kind of what you start to hit on at a certain point where you have the question of, well, why should people be forced to have to watch? Why, how do we protect the children from seeing if they stumble upon? You kind of understand where I'm coming from. These are This is part of the perspective you get. And look, here's what happens on planes nowadays, at least in my experience. You walk up and down the aisle and you, people aren't just watching what the plane is providing them with. They have many ways to watch whatever they want on all kinds of devices, right? I've told this so, anecdote a dozen times. I was on a flight, and uh, people had been telling me about Game of Thrones. They were like, oh, Game of Thrones, you got to watch it. So I, like, loaded it up on Netflix or some other thing that let me, like, load it on my iPad, and I was watching it next to, like, a very nice old lady. <laughs> and there's a lot of nudity in the first season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I was just sitting there, and I kept on being like, I hope she's taking a nap. I hope she doesn't think I'm watching medieval porno on an airplane. Um, yeah, my version of that story is my wife and I were on a flight. This must have been pre-having kids. And I think we watched Keanu, the P- Key and Peele Oh, that movie. movie is so good. It's so funny. We were laughing so hard. 
And there's this really nice, uh, he was also a pilot, but I think he flew uh, private and he was just taking this flight and really nice kind of straight laced, conservative, old fashioned type of guy. And he was like, wow, you guys, he was so nice. We were obviously from different perspectives, but friendly. And he was like, you guys really love that movie. I should give it a try. So he watches it. He did not crack a smile the entire time. And he was kind of like, I don't know what you're, you know. So it became this weirdly awkward, like, you know, communal watching experience of, yeah, it's not for everyone, I guess, but it was really funny to us. Um, But yeah, you're experiencing something that may not be deemed appropriate or may not be enjoyable to everybody on the plane in your own little private space. But I think the idea of censoring what Delta or any airline puts out is silly This in this day and age when, like you said, anybody can fire up their iPad or computer and watch whatever they want. No well, one's going to come by and stop them, to my you, knowledge. Also, provided you have a warning, right? Like, I think a warning is more than fair to be like, hey, this movie's going to talk about X. You know, because, like, if you're... And I, even all the shows have it too, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Because, like, you know, I remember taking my mom to see Gangs of New York and she walked out and, like, I love Gangs of New York. And she, all she could talk about was how violent it was. And I was like, oh, yeah, my mom doesn't – she's not – she, like, isn't desensitized to violence. Like, it still yes. has – which, yes. like, is good for her it's, as a human being. But it also sure. is something yeah. that, like, if you were going to put Gangs of New York on a flight, you should probably say, this is pretty violent. And history crushes them in the end at the head of the um, – Yeah. At the head credits, so that you can make informed decisions as a consumer. Um, but the the interesting, I don't know. The nice thing for me was the filmmaker having a voice, right? Like forty years ago, the filmmaker would have had to sue. They would have had to be like, I don't, you know. They would have had to write a, a letter into the New York Times and had, you know, and like literally, she just tweeted about it. And she has following on Twitter, and she's engaged with people, and like some good things come out of Twitter. And yeah, no, I mean, there's a there's a way to use the the internet and the fervor to your advantage and this goes back to your idea of how marketing changes like there's a lot of pressure to appeal to the needs of a mass of an angry mass on the internet so if you can stir that up in your direction then you can actually impact change even though the people making the change obviously don't have an ethical or moral stance on the matter i don't think delta Delta's just trying to weigh, and I don't. I apologize if it's not Delta, but they're just trying to weigh what's worse in terms of the optics or in terms of offending people. How are we going to piss off more people, or how are we going to piss off less people? Well, I will also- say though, you br- you bring up a good point that reminds me back that brings me back to the Scorsese thing, which is Scorsese's talking about filmmaking today and your voice, but think about what kind of voice, like pre-code or just post-code filmmakers had if they didn't like what someone did with their work or censored it or, oh, or yeah. recut it or like that you you don't have any voice at the you don't have any seat at the table right so this yeah. is a whole new thing so this in that way this is a much better era for the filmmaker well and also i think censorship is one of those things they always say with laws like it's way easier to make them than to get rid of them so we just end up with all these like regulatory creep and i think censorship is one of those things if it's like you know, they, they hire it to a third-party company. That third-party company is probably just being as careful as they can possibly be, and if it could possibly offend anyone ever, anywhere, they they make the rule. But then culture changes, 
And they're, they're not undoing those rules. So, yeah, in the 60s, people would probably not have been comfortable with the word vagina being said repeatedly in a movie shown on an airplane. So they make the rule. Right. And then culture changes. And I think we're all way more comfortable with the fact that, like, women have vaginas. Some men have vaginas. Animals have vaginas. Vaginas are around. You can buy them in the store. Why can't we talk about them in a movie? And, <laughs> like, you have to push back against those things because, you know, the default in those third-party companies is just going to be as safe as possible and never change. So it takes yeah. like it takes permanent vigilance, ever vigilant out there on the scenes in the in the skies. Director Olivia Wilde. I was just gonna say real quick. It's it's really fun when you can find a project, a movie or a show that somehow did things that skated on or over the line before that line was appropriate. To oh cross. yeah, that is because sometimes those exist and they usually didn't do very well or they had backlash at the time, but it's always fascinating to me. Oh, or so you watch it, uh, the big, is it the big sleep with Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart yes, and that scene about horse yes. rating? And you're like, that movie was a hit. And like half of yeah. America knew what that scene was about. And the other half of America was like, Oh, they're really into horse racing. Um, yeah. There's so much weird stuff like that. That's oh, it's so great. It's so <laughs> great. This week's episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, FilmTools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at FilmTools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to FilmTools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. All right, up next, tech news. All right, this week in tech news, the big news this week is Adobe Max. Adobe Max is Adobe's, like, Adobe-only conference. Uh, it used to be in Vegas, now it's in L.A. Um, they always have some big news where they're rolling out some new features there. And the big news for Adobe Max this year, as is everybody this year, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Will this steal jobs? <laughs> uh, I was trying to do, like, a nightly news program thing. Um so skynet yeah <laughs> despite last weekend's box office results yeah um which bummed me out because i actually i'm a big i think Mackenzie davis is great based only on her performance in halt and catch fire and for some reason she always seems to end up in blockbusters that bomb which bums me out also mm. because the other one she was in uh, blade runner 2049 i really liked blade runner 2049 oh, and it kind of bombed yeah and yeah. so i'm wondering like what it is about Mackenzie davis and the blockbusters she picks because she, I mean, it's also a lot of blockbusters bomb, and it's hard to find the good ones. So it could just be a just roll of the dice. Luck. And the next McKenzie Davis blockbuster will be a big one. Um, but even <laughs> Catch Fire, I don't think was as widely seen as it should have been. Anyway, less on Terminator 2 and the robots taking all of our jobs from us, and more on Adobe Premiere and the robots making our jobs easier. The big marquee feature they really showed off at Adobe Max this year is automatic reframing for social media. This doesn't seem like a big deal until you realize that, holy cow, this is something everybody is doing all the time, always, on a variety of projects. Um, pretty much every movie ever made, even if it's not getting released in its entirety in vertical, it's getting marketed in vertical. 
So if you're a big studio and you're making this big, beautiful, it's like, you know, you're shooting 70 millimeter widescreen, 2.76 to 1. You still have to make take elements from that. And you have to put elements from that on 15 second Instagram videos to let people know, hey, this movie is coming out to constantly remind them. That's more true of some movies than others. I doubt Tarantino's Hateful Eight got a big Instagram push, although maybe it did. I don't know. I didn't see any uh, Instagram ads for it. Um, I think of this more for like the movies targeted in that market. But, you know, we're looking at a whole bunch of other um, platforms that are sort of launching directly for this. And so they have a AI driven reformatting tool that works like a plugin that literally you drop it on your timeline and it reformats all of your shots for you into square or vertical video. And I saw a demo of it about two weeks ago here in New York, and it is super impressive. Um yeah, we have be- a couple stories up on this up on No Film School that cover its its functionality. Um, on both we cut co- we've <clears throat> both covering Adobe Max in general, but also what's happening in Premiere Pro and particularly reframing for TikTok, which is one of the well. That was the thing is, is you know the <laughs> Premiere Clip now lets you. Uh, you know, because usually most of these platforms, you can push a button straight to YouTube, push a button straight to Vimeo. They added TikTok. You can push a button straight to TikTok now, which like. Honestly, I'm not even disappointed in Adobe. It's just I'm sad for TikTok because TikTok (laughs) – well, no, because TikTok is supposed to be this chaotic juvenile place without professional slickness, without like you're editing it on the phone. You're doing it all on the phone. It's like it's supposed to be this like really like lo-fi thing. And so now like basically Adobe adding direct to TikTok is like the adults showing up at the party and being like, how do you do, fellow kids? Look at my beautifully produced TikTok video with nice lighting and nice editing and motion graphics that I loaded straight into TikTok. (laughs) And it's like – it kind of defeats. I just the thought punk of the, Steve, Busch- the yeah. Steve Buscemi meme. <laughs> yeah, no, the, like dire- direct to TikTok is very much. No, that's Thirty Rock. How do you do, fellow kids? Oh right, right, right. Where he's right, undercover right, yes. in the high school with a skateboard. Yes. How do you do, fellow? Yes, kids? but it's uh, I, you know what else? I just it that it reminds me of though is like that people now, young people, very young people right now are familiar with why all these things are important. So we're talking both to people who are already like, yeah, I know I got to reformat everything or I understand because I see all the ads for movies on Instagram. And then there are people like, they're advertising movies on Instagram? What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I think that it's like, so Facebook, you know, used to be hard to believe something that was for like college students, not for boomers and older people. Boomer Um, flakes? Is Is that a hashtag? Boomer flakes? (laughs) <laughs> it's but now it's uh you know these th- this is i think what you're what you're saying about adobe coming to tiktok means it's like yeah the grown-ups are showing up the pros are coming in and yet you know like facebook still has some great memes so i think there's room for both we'll see i don't know i, I if tiktok was over because both the new york times and the new yorker had like four thousand word word articles about it in october <laughs> and it's like once both of them that's a death now yeah. they just needed new york magazine and it would have been a trifecta um but it was very much you know i feel like that's more it's over than the fact that there's a government investigation into tiktok making it over i think it's really the media coverage from the traditional media but 
I will say this, based on the New Yorker article, which I think was Gia Tolentino, who is a great writer and I really enjoy her stuff, I installed TikTok, I watched like 20 TikToks, one of which was the perfect TikTok, and I immediately deleted the app, because I was like, all right, I've seen the perfect TikTok, it is amazing, I've tweeted it out, I'll retweet it, it's amazing, it makes me so happy, it's like the perfect narrative structure. Um, But going back to the reframing thing, reframing is sort of in an interesting space, because so, you know, I, uh, I've mentioned on the website and a bunch of other places that I directed a web series, Salty Pirate, where we just finished it. We're currently in talks with some people about uh, where to release it. And um, and speaking of, if anybody out there is, like, from a streaming platform, you should totally get in touch with me. We're shopping around Salty Pirate right now. But we're talking to one company, and they're super great, and I really like them, and they're very nice, and we're having good conversations, and the term sheet seems reasonable. and um, But they're all vertical. And they're like, we know you didn't make this vertical originally. It's like on their website where they're like, we know none of you did. We'll handle all the reframing for you if you want. But it's just interesting. And it's so funny because I was out to dinner with the producer and the producer's like, man, that vertical thing, that's a killer. And it's funny because like I was a fucking DP for a long time and I care a lot about framing and I would obviously not let them do it. I would redo the framing myself. But I'm, I just want people to watch the story I told. And if the yeah. world has moved to a vertical place... And I can do the framing myself. I mean, it's nice of them to offer to do the framing, this platform. But if I can do the framing myself, it won't be the original framing we designed on set. But I want the story to be told. I want the story to engage with people. And if I can find a way to tell that story in a different aspect ratio, I'm more open to it. I was way more stubborn about this 15 years ago uh, when I was like a freelance DP and working on projects. And like the web was first a thing. And someone was like, oh, we're going to try and release this vertical too. And I was like, no, you're not. Um, and now I'm like no but I work so hard to tell this story and I just want the most number of people to see it possible so it's an interesting space I think that's a good good counterpoint to the idea of um, what is cinema and where do you experience cinema in certain ways because if we're like we're talking about we're just we're trying to tell stories and for most storytellers who are working in this medium with these elements it's really more about how do we get people to experience it and see it yeah. and not where are they, what special place are they going to experience it or see it. And that's the joke of how Nolan intended being like, you know, people watching uh, Dunkirk on their phones or whatever. Um, it's going to happen in ways, in different ways now. And you just want to connect. And like I've said, I've had, I've had gaming experiences like video games that I thought were phenomenal from a storytelling standpoint. And I've had television experiences that I thought were phenomenal from, and, and they're not, and they're cinematic and they're not in the theaters and it can, it can want, it happened to you with the little TikTok you found. It was a perfect story, right? So it can happen anywhere. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then the most important thing for me to wrap it back up to Adobe is you know, one of the nice things about the Adobe tools is that they're still editable. So it doesn't, it's not an invisible mystery box where you drop the plugin on and you can't change anything. What it does is it goes through and it changes the effects parameters. So it goes in and it changes zoom and, and all of that stuff. But you can still use the same old familiar effect parameters you're used to controlling. So if you go into a shot and you're like, oh, I want it to be closer, you can still go into that same effects tab and it's already zoomed it in a bit and you zoom it in more. So it is... Like, the way they implemented it, I think, is a nice way where filmmakers will still have some control over how that reframing happens. Because it's a big decision as you think about reframing. I mean, for me, I framed Salty Pirate with the idea in mind that it would occasionally be shown in a theater. And, you know, I got to cut a lot of it at a theater here where I work. And we had our big screening last week in a theater. 
but in a theater, you're usually wider on people because a big close-up where a face is 20 feet tall can be a little tense in a theater. But then when I reframe it for social, and I don't know that the AI is going to do this. I think the human hand will still have to be there. When I reframe it for social, there are some wide shots where I'll crop out some of the empty space and get closer to people because on a phone, all that empty space isn't as interesting as it is to get close to the characters. So it's not just a matter... I think reframing... I think it'll speed up the process, this new Adobe tool, but I think someone is still going to have to be there making emotional decisions, not, not just AI decisions. Until the AI itself has feelings, and then the AI will eventually be like, ooh, I want to be closer in this scene because the character's sad. So listen mm. up, Adobe. License some feelings for your machine learning <laughs> engine and have them bring feelings to the reframing. That'll be next year at Adobe Max. <laughs> All right, and then our final question this week is a bit of an oddball, but I saw it on the boards, and I was like, I want to answer this question because it's fun. The question, Jake Herlihoe, what's an HBO show that I probably haven't seen? Which I love this question because it's it's like, well, I don't know what you haven't seen, and I'm not good at <laughs> guessing that, but I think, but I think it is interesting to think about, like, what are the HBO shows that broke out? Obviously, Game of Thrones, Watchmen. If you're not watching Watchmen, watch Watchmen. It's awesome. Um, it, you know, these are the Chernobyl. These the all Sopranos. became the Sopranos. Uh, Sex in the City. Honestly, I gotta say, I remain a Sex in the City. The TV show Defender. The movies were another universe, but the the, the TV show was pretty solid. There was some good writing in there. Um, Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm sure people watch that. But but you know these are the ones we can assume had a big audience because we also saw the ratings yeah. and the prizes. What are the ones that are a little more underrated that didn't necessarily? Oh, Secession. We can assume you've all watched. Everybody should go watch Secession. It's so good, so good. You hate yes. them all, and it doesn't matter because it's so good. Even Greg, even Greg is bad. Um, although he might be good. Fascinating. In the end. Uh, it's fast. I, I think it's worthy of further analysis as to how that. That they yeah. pull that off. But, but anyway. I, so I'm going to drop one that, like, I'm sure you've heard of, but if you have heard of it and haven't watched it, or if you haven't heard of it and you uh, you should watch it, The Wire, arguably the best TV show of all time. And here's why I'm going to make a case for The Wire being one you should watch and The, the Wire maybe being one of the biggest, uh, one of the most interesting movies of all time. Most television relies upon a central character protagonist to be the hook that gets us into the show, right? If you, We don't really have that in Secession because we have the three kids competing, although some could argue that Connor is the secret protagonist. We'll leave that to another discussion. Um, but, you know, Game of Thrones has Jon Snow. Uh, Mad Men has Jon Hamm's character, Don Draper. Uh, the Sopranos had Tony. Um, you know, Sex in the City had uh, Carrie. These are the central protagonists of the show. Um, the Wire attempts to make a show that is not really about individuals, but it is about the way in which the individual relates to the city. So there are characters you relate to. There's McNulty, who I always want to say McNutty, and Bunk. And there are two <laughs> detectives that, like, we come close to identifying solely with, but, like, they're not really the protagonists of the show and there's whole seasons where they're barely present. And there's a whole season where McNutty's out on a boat because he's been insubordinate and like 
Prez, this other guy who goes to teach becomes a character. But what The Wire's really trying to do is it's really trying to do like an almost Greek tragedy size story about people who live in cities and how we interact with the civic institutions of the city, how cities affect the people who live in them and what possibilities there are for change within that. It is a big, broad, amazing canvas that is so sprawling from the street corners where drugs are sold to the top of the mayor's office through all of these other spaces. It is this like amazingly affectionate, nuanced portrait. I mean, it's very specific to Baltimore, but it's also a very big attempt at really engaging with like where we are now as a civilization. It's also really funny. Uh, one thing that you should know about The Wire, if you've never watched it, is David Simon, he has an article about this somewhere. He's not anti-exposition, but he he's really minimal in exposition. Like, the pilot of The Wire just starts. And you're just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> now I'm like in it's, a story, and there's not a lot point, of exposition. Yeah. The, the Wire can be tough sledding in the sense that it doesn't, um, because it doesn't have a, a central protagonist. I mean, you could argue, argue the central protagonist Griggs. is the city of Baltimore. Or Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, it is also, uh, it's very steeped in how the systems work. It's a story about systems and almost uh, how civic structure, like you said, and how they work together and how they ultimately don't work and collapse and crush people and and the frustrations of that. But it's also kind of about power structures in all these different facets, like between, a, uh, you know, drug dealers, cops, um, the mayor's office, district attorney's office, like where all these, how, how all these structures work together and, and work similarly. But it is a, it is an amazing show and it's 100% worth the watch of, of all of it. It's just one of those like so my my answer to this though is a little weird because I feel like HBO has maintained a caliber most of the time of quality. And I think part of how they do it without knowing for sure is I think they've been iterating on certain structural themes story-wise. And I think in a lot of ways, succession is an heir to Sopranos and the wire and game of thrones and i think that there's 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 themes that you you will find in the way these different shows have been put together that kind of un- helps you understand why some of the other shows are so effective so my like i'll say i if you haven't seen deadwood i think deadwood is phenomenal and holds up extremely well and i love it but so, i also love westerns one one thing about um, deadwood there is a movie that just came out with the name deadwood totally unrelated to the show you don't need to watch it <laughs> it wasn't it's different whole different thing just stick with the three seasons the original three seasons of the show you'll be fine the original, yeah. Don't worry about the movie. The three seasons are great and similar to lack of exposition in The Wire. You might find that it's a little hard to understand how they speak. They speak in a, in a, in their own way. He creates his own almost language. Um, There's a Deadwood the dialect. Uh, David it's Milch. just beautiful, though. David Milch. Yeah, it's uh, it's his own kind of Shakespeare. It has a rhythm and a cadence and. Uh, the, and a vulgarity, um, and a beautiful vulgarity, like the yep. best swearing ever. Like, truly, um, Al Swearingen, the character Al Swearingen is a is like a 
unique creation in television history, I think. And I really feel like Logan Roy is a descendant of that oh, yeah. character. I, I really think they do these, I think there's things they're exploring and iterating on. And I think if you go back and watch some of these little lesser watched pockets, then you watch something that's that's happening right now on HBO that's amazing. And this would be true of the of of Mad Men and of um Breaking Bad, but I feel like these shows tie together, they're building on one another. And I I think Deadwood is a really critical piece because to the HBO legacy of of great shows because even though it's three seasons and it didn't really complete itself, um some of the characters there are great and uh it's you know it's just great i i loved that show i loved the wire um what are some of the really good ones that are lesser watched lesser watched hbo shows are tricky because so many of the good ones break out and some of the lesser watched ones sort of maybe didn't find an audience on on uh, on good reason like i tried to watch john from cincinnati and i couldn't really get into it um you know I'm, i think honestly deadwood and the wire if you haven't seen those two start there um and I hopefully, hopefully that answered your question. I think we did it. If there's a show we missed, let us know on Twitter. As always, you yeah. Can let find... us know what we should watch. What have oh, we yeah. missed? What did We're we probably miss? forgetting one. <laughs> so as always, I'm Charles Hayne. If you like my tech coverage and you want only tech coverage, you can subscribe to my podcast, The Week in Film Tech which is all tech stuff all the time. I write articles for the No Film School site. Uh, I also, charleshane.com is like my directing stuff. I got a web series, Salty Pirate. That's coming out in the spring, uh, I think. I'm talking to people about maybe releasing it in the spring, and I'm excited about that. And uh, yeah, I will see you guys all next week. Yeah, and I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can listen to me on other No Film School podcasts. Like us, rate us, comment, let us know what you think. Um, send us any questions uh, or just comments or complaints to editor at nofilmschool.com. Check out the site, nofilmschool.com. We have tons of new posts every day. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're putting out more and more videos and tutorials. YouTube. We cover uh, educational content, uh, news, industry news, as well as all things tech. So, And if there's things you think we should cover that we don't, please let us know. And... Uh, Hopefully hear from you soon. See you next week.